0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Good morning, Reality. Today our scripture verse is coming from Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that deepens on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any, any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom... I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And for it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This tide, we've been looking at texts that communicate the already not yet, of kingdom life. The fact that as Christians, we are already justified in Christ. He has already paid our sin debt, and we are already citizens of his heavenly kingdom. But also that we are not yet in the new creation. Things still go wrong. There's still pain. There are still obstacles, and life can still be very difficult. And we're exploring what life looks like in between These two advents of Jesus in between his first coming and his second coming. We're exploring the tension of life lived in that time. And so this morning we're going to be doing that again in the book of Philippians. And we're going to be looking at chapter three, particularly verses eight through chapter four, verse one. But if you walk away with anything this morning, I want you to at least know that you heard my main point very clearly. My main point is, because God has already declared us righteous in Christ, we can press on to the end in joy, knowing for sure that we will get there. Because he has already declared us righteous in Christ, we can press on to the end in joy, knowing for sure that we will get there. And I want to unpack that point in three points. Our righteousness, our call, and our strength our righteousness, our call, and our strength. And so point number one, our righteousness. A much anticipated documentary called The Last Dance has been airing for the past several weeks. And this documentary follows the 1997-1998 season of the Chicago Bulls. But more than that, it really tells the in-depth story of Michael Jordan's basketball career. If you think you don't know anything about Michael Jordan, you probably at least know two things. Number one, he's widely considered to be basketball's greatest of all time, the GOAT, as it's known. And number two, Michael really likes to win. In fact, you can pretty accurately say that winning is what drives every aspect of him. He works hard, he makes sacrifices, and he endures pain in order to get the trophy that is given out to the victor, to get the trophy that is only given out to the winner. And that trophy and being known as the best, the accolades that he picks up along the way, they're his justification to the basketball world. And now I'm not saying anything about his justification in an eternal sense. I'm talking about within the world of basketball. They show his value. These things, they prove his basketball worth. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote our letter that we're in this morning, was similarly known as the best. The first section of chapter 3 is Paul's documentary. It's his last dance. It shows his worth. And if Michael is the goat of basketball, then we could make the argument that Paul is the goat of Pharisees. And we don't really have to look further than the fact that in verse 6 he says, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. No faults. And while Paul has the goat record, he then goes on to write immediately in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he doubles down on that statement into verse 8 when he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything he's attained, his standing, his pedigree, his confidence in how he is viewed before others, it all falls into this bucket of whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. You see, once he was confronted with a true, perfect righteousness in Christ, he realized that the record he had created for himself was nothing but trash. You see, I'm, I really love the game of basketball. I love to watch it, and I love to play it. And two years ago, and, and you know, I think I'm actually pretty good at the game, but two years ago, my brother-in-law and I were able to go visit a warrior's practice, and when you, and this is two years ago, so it's mid-dynasty warriors. And seeing Steph and seeing Clay up close, seeing their greatness, their perfection at their craft, it really puts your own skills into perspective. The chasm is much bigger than I thought it was. And that was Paul's encounter with Jesus. Paul gives up a life of what would have certainly been comfort and power and, and maybe even ease to enter into a life of difficulty the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, he writes in verse 8. And this is all because he encountered what would have certainly, excuse me, all because of what he had encountered, the truth that his his blameless record wasn't really blameless. He thought he was great. He even thought he was the best. Then he was confronted with true greatness, true perfection. And through faith, that greatness was attributed to him. If by God's grace, you've encountered the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ for yourself, if, you, if you've come to see that even your best, even what you thought you were holding up to God to say like this, this is what will earn my way in. This is, at least my good is going to outweigh my bad. If you, if you realize that all of that effort was just filthy rags of sin before God, and that if you've trusted in Jesus to have paid the debt that that sin required, then his perfect righteousness is yours as well. And that is the glory of the gospel. Our record for his, our sin debt for his perfect righteousness credited to our account. And it's important that we start with this in view as we now move into our call. And it's important not only because it comes in the text first, but, but because it informs our call. And so number two, our call. And I'm not going to hold anything back. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And so, our call, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Paul is now willing to, quote, suffer the loss of all things, if it means that he gains Christ and is found in him. And now, suffer really means suffer here. He's not being hyperbolic. He's not trying to exaggerate his words to try to make a point. He's really giving it all up. He's really going to do whatever it takes. That by any means possible, he'll attain the resurrection from the dead, he writes in verse 11. One commentator notes that when he says by any means, he does not indicate doubt, but difficulty. Paul doesn't doubt that he's going to make it to the end, but he also doesn't doubt that the path there is going to be a difficult one. And so our call, too, as Christians, is to a difficult path. Before we get into the aspects of the call that we see here in the text, I, 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 need, I need to explain two Greek words to us quickly. Because I really think it's going to open up what we understand the rest of the text to be saying. And so look in verses 12 through 14. Paul says, press on. And he says, straining forward. And he says, press on again. And these words are about endurance, yes. But they're more than just begrudgingly moving forward. It's more than just, "Ah, you're the authority, so I guess I have to listen. But I don't really want to. But I'm just going to kind of keep inch by inch moving my way there. It's more than that. The word that's translated press on in our passage literally means to aggressively chase. The imagery is like a hunter chasing after its prize. It's like a cheetah chasing down the gazelle. He's not just moving forward inch by inch, but he's hauling it. He's trying to get that prize because he knows that's, that's his meal. He's giving it everything he has. And interestingly, this word shows up a third time in this chapter. Back in verse 6. However, there, the word is translated persecutor. See, Paul was a zealous persecutor of the church. He was a zealous persecutor of Christ, and he is still a zealous persecutor of Christ. But now the zeal with which he used to chase Christians down, he is now using to build Christians up. The other word that I mentioned, straining forward, means stretching intensely toward. It's like in the movie Cars when Lightning McQueen got his flats and he's trying with everything he can to get across that finish line just to win the Piston Cup. And and he's trying so hard that he even stretches his tongue out, reaching with every last ounce just to make it, just to get there, just to get the prize. You see, the Christian life is not one of ease and coasting and kind of letting the tide move you along where it will. It's one of pressing. And pursuing, and stretching, and straining with all we've got just to get to the end, our prize. But we do it in joy. Philippians is a letter about Christian joy. Christ, who saved us, who has given us this call and will embrace us at the end, makes this difficult journey a joyful journey. And so now let's look at this joyful call that we have and that we see in the text in three brief aspects. The verdict, the focus, and the example. The verdict. Verses 13 through 14 say, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here again, we see some overlap with an athlete, right? Paul puts in the hard work to get to the prize at the end like Michael does. Michael puts in the hard work, but Michael puts in the hard work because he's trying to position himself to be in a better chance to win at the end. And so the difference is what Paul has in view already. In the already, not yet, we already have Jesus' perfect righteousness credited to us, but we are not yet perfect as Christ is. Paul concedes that much in verse 12 when he says, not that I am already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. But we have that already aspect in view as we move forward. We forget what lies behind, our good works, our earning, our trying to merit God's acceptance, our trying to balance the justice scales at the end of the day. That that all is in the past life. That lies behind us. And we look forward in faith To what is sure, our record in Christ. Tim Keller has said that Christianity is the only religion where you get the verdict before the performance. Yes, there is still a performance, it's what we're called into, it's the Christian life we've been talking about. But we already have the verdict, we already know the outcome. So unlike Michael, we're not trying to position ourselves to hope that we can get in. We know that we're going to get in, and therefore we live lives according to that knowledge. The focus. And so our call now is to throw off our earthly focus and focus on the heavenly. And that is certainly going to mean difficulty in this life, but it's difficulty that we do with joy because of the focus that we have. Let me explain. We, We can see this in the contrasting images that Paul uses in this text, and there's a lot of them. but but he uses them to try to highlight the focus shift. We see a shift of focus from, from earth, from the earthly things to heaven, and we see that when he says, lose to gain. Righteousness of my own or a righteousness from Christ. Die to resurrect what lies behind with what lies ahead. Earthly things and heavenly things. Lowly bodies and glorious bodies. Paul is telling that telling us that with a heavenly focus, we will not only be willing to lead lives of suffering and difficulty for Christ, but we will do it with joy because of where our eyes are, because of what we're focused on. Are you willing to experience difficulty or persecution from your peers if it means following Christ? Are you willing to throw off cultural norms of the day, which, by the way, are always changing generation to generation, and are never uniformed around the world, are you willing to throw those off if it means walking with Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Are you willing to break step with your political party if it means being faithful to Christ? It's 2020, folks. November's coming. Are you willing to break step with your political party and their, their ideology that they've put before you, that they say you must embrace this to be one of us, and, and their candidate that they've put before you to say voting for him is, is accepting this ideology. Are you willing to throw that aside if it means being faithful to Christ, who is the actual and true sovereign king of the universe? Are you willing to lose your job and be cast headlong onto the Sovereign and good providence of God if it means obeying Christ. And are you willing to do these things in joy for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord? Is is Christ this glorious to you? Is he so wonderful to you that you're willing to enter into difficulty for him? Our Lord was perfected through suffering, Hebrews 2.10 tells us. Should we expect that it's going to be any different for us? You see, the false preachers in Paul's day and the false preachers today would say that you're doing it wrong if you're experiencing obstacles, but that's not what it says here. So let's look at the example. Turn your attention with me to verses 17 through 21. Paul exhorts us to imitate him at verse 17, the beginning. He he says, follow his example insofar as he's following Christ. And we know that the example of Christ is an example of victory through suffering, Victory through seeming defeat. And that's what those within the family of Christ do. We follow after Christ, our head. See, those outside the family, the enemies of the cross, which, spoiler alert, we're not supposed to follow their example, they're unwilling to submit to pain for Christ. They only do what pleases them. They're interested in living the good life, and that life has no pain in it, only temporal pleasures. Verse 19 says that their God is their belly. And what that means is that they're only interested in, their, in, in satisfying their carnal hunger and thirsts. And frighteningly, though, Paul likely has gospel preachers in mind here. Those that he speaks about in chapter 1, who are preaching out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but out of pretense. Pretense. They desire only their own honor, only their own ease, and only their own gain, with no regard to upbuilding of those around them. In fact, Paul says back in chapter 1 that they are thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment with their preaching. The false preachers are saying, if you were doing this right, you'd be out here with influence and acclaim like us. They'd say, you know what, Christian, if you were doing this right, you'd have that man of your dreams or that woman of your dreams, or you'd have that six-figure salary or those 2.5 kids that always listen, or you'd have that white picket fence, and you'd have everything your heart desires if you were doing this right. You must be doing something wrong if you're in prison, Paul. You must be doing something wrong if you're in pain, Christian. But that's the very opposite of Paul's message. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner writes that the pain Paul endured was the means by which the message of the gospel was extended to the nations. Suffering was not a side effect of the Pauline mission. Rather, it was at the very center of his apostolic evangelism. His pains validated and legitimated his message, demonstrating the truth of the gospel. That is Paul's way. And that's our way because that is Christ's way our head instead those pretending to be our friends are actually our worst enemies because at the end of the day when push comes to shove they are not going to pick up their cross and follow christ and if they are not going to suffer for christ then they're not going to suffer for you they're whitewashed tombs beautiful on the outside dead on the inside John Calvin comments on this section, and he says that this statement overturns all empty shows in which pretended ministers of the gospel are accustomed to glory, because by flying about above the earth, they do not aspire toward heaven. And that just means that all those with their minds set only on the here and now, the enemies of the cross, as Paul calls them, only on what will profit them in this life, prove that they aren't concerned with the life to come. Their minds are set on the earth. Our minds are set on heaven. We set our minds on heaven where our Savior is and where our true citizenship lies rather than on our temporal circumstances. Your good or, listen to me, your good or your bad circumstances right now do not prove or disprove God's love for you. The cross does. The cross tells you how God cares about you. We don't dwell upon pain because the pain is surpassed by the glory and greatness of what's to come. God will take our lowly bodies, these frail tabernacles, and make them like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. He will make them into glorious bodies. God's plan is headed toward recreation, new heavens, new earth, new restored bodies. He's not eliminating the temporal, but he's perfecting it. He's not getting rid of what you can touch, taste, and feel, but he's refining it, making it into what he had always intended for it to be. Our call as Christians is to march toward that day in the power and perfect record of Jesus Christ and for his glory and nothing less. Whatever comes our way, our call is to march toward that day in power, in the power of Jesus, in the perfect record of Jesus and for the glory and fame of Jesus. And so third and finally, our strength. Over and over again in sports, especially in the championship round, you, you'll, you'll hear a player or a coach say something along the lines of, well, you know, if you had told us at the beginning of the season or in, or in training camp that um, we'd be in a winner-take-all, game seven for the finals for the championship at the end, of the end of the year, we'd take those odds. Yeah, we'd take those odds. And what they mean is that they've got good odds to come out as champions, right? All the other teams are out of the way. It's just one team in front of them, 50-50 at worst. And if they just work really hard, they might be able to even improve those odds. Friends, we've got better odds. All through our passage, Paul has written things like, press on in verse 12, straining forward in verse 13, press toward the goal in verse 14, imitate me in verse 17, and stand firm in chapter 4, verse 1. This is all active language. These are things that we must do. It's part of our call. These are things that we have to carry out. And so on a cursory reading, Paul might sound like the coach. It's going to be tough, but we'll take those odds. It's going to be hard, but if I just press on, I might be able to make it. I might be able to situate myself so that I can win the prize. It's going to be difficult, but if I can just imitate Paul as he's imitating Christ, they seem like they knew what they were doing. And and if I can do well enough, then maybe I'll be able to position myself to be able to get in. If I can just follow their example. I'm reminded of a quote recently that I heard from Scott Sauls who says that if Jesus is just your example, he'll crush you. He's too good. He's perfect. If he's just your example, he'll crush you. He has to be more and smack in the middle of our passage, we then read, let us hold true to what we have attained, verse 16. Past tense. Well, what have we attained? It's the perfect righteousness in Christ. It's a, it's a record admitting us into God's heavenly throne room. It's, it's a perfect, unsoiled, unstained record that allows us to come into that prize, to enter into our heavenly reward. And so that means in chapter 4, verse 1, when Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He means stand in that righteousness. He means live in that righteousness. He means persevere in that righteousness. He's not just saying stand strong. He's saying stand strong in the Lord. He's not just saying in your power, but in God's power, in his undergirding strength. Perseverance or or making it to the end is God's work. He establishes us and keeps us upon the solid foundation of Christ. Jeff Metters writes it like this. He writes, Perseverance means that believers in Christ will make it home to the new heavens and the new earth and will reign forever with Christ because of Christ. We, we cannot accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we cannot continue in that acceptance. That's, that's what it means when we're persevering. We're continuing in the acceptance that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and we cannot do those things without God renewing our heart to do so. He, he not only snatches us with his sovereign hand, but he holds us tight. So we stand strong in Christ. We stand strong because of Christ Christ. We stand strong for Christ. And so let me conclude with this. In, in Acts chapter 5, uh, Peter and the apostles were beaten for exalting the name of Jesus. And they left, quote, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. See, in the already of the already not yet, God's spirit equips us to be able to have overflowing joy in suffering for Christ. His spirit equips us to stand firm. And his spirit continually takes our eyes to Christ, to him who is worthy, to him who has caused us to live our lives this way. He causes you not to fix your eyes on your current mountain that you're climbing. And some of us, I got to admit, we're climbing serious mountains, but he causes you not to fix your eyes on that mountain, but on the mountain that Jesus climbed. Bloodied and beaten, Jesus stayed on the cross to reconcile you to God. He stayed there until it was finished. And as we gaze upon the God-man, cursed in our place and for our sin, his perfect record credited to our account because our sin debt was credited to his account, he will again affix our feet to the sturdy rock that is Christ. He will equip us by his Holy Spirit to with joy wander down that difficult path with our eyes up on him, our seated victor, ruling and reigning in heaven where our citizenship truly lies. And he will keep us standing firm as we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus until we make it home to him, our prize. He is our prize. And on our own, we can't do it. Look to him, though. See his beauty. See his surpassing worth. He is worthy, friends. And as we live In the already of the already not yet, we need his sustaining power to lead us home. And he will surely do it. Grace and peace.